You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. I want to tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, Tempted Like Christ. Tempted Like Christ. Again, very, a very happy new year to all of you. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad that everyone came out this morning. I haven't seen some of you since last year, <laughs> right? Um, but definitely glad to have you all this morning and joining us for the first service of the new year. Now, as per uh, usual, we often start the new year with a vision casting series, a series to remind ourselves of the vision of our church to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also to remind us of how we do that, the mission of our church. We do that by reaching people with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ, by cultivating lives that revolve around Christ, and also reflecting his love to our community around us. Now, a big theme and a big focus that we're going to be looking at this year together as a church is the idea or the theme of discipleship, what it means to make disciples of Christ and what it means to be a disciple of Christ. In ancient times, a disciple was basically a carbon copy of a rabbi. You would become sort of an apprentice to a a religious leader, a rabbi, and you would copy every single thing that that rabbi did, the way that he walked, the time that he would eat, the doctrine that he taught. You would become a, a mini version of that rabbi. And similarly, when we call ourselves a disciple of Christ, we are to be the same. We are to be like our great rabbi, Jesus Christ, in every way. Now, Obviously, there's a lot to that, and we're going to be unpacking that as we go along the year. But in this first series of the year, this vision casting series, we're going to be looking at how it looks like to be a disciple of Christ, how to be like Christ via our mission statement. Again, our reach, revolve, reflect, uh, our mission statement of the church. I think oftentimes when we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, we automatically go to the do's and don'ts. We do this. We don't do that. We come to church. We, we act nice. We, we, we say nice things. We behave. All of these, the do's and don'ts of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. But as we know from scripture, the more important thing is the shape of our hearts. The condition of our hearts and our minds and how we, how, how we pursue and perceive things of this world. And so as we enter into our, our, our first series of the year, our first focus in this, in this vision casting series is our revolve mission, to cultivate lives that revolve around Christ. Now, in the past, we've discussed that in order to cultivate those lives, we need to have a Christ-centered worldview. And again, I get, it's not just about what we do in this life, but more importantly, how our heart and our, how our mind perceives and pursues things in this life. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the, the heart and motivation and the purpose and, and, and the things that drove our Savior himself. Because again, if we want to be like Christ, if we want to be disciples of Christ, I think it's a good idea to know exactly what motivated the Savior himself. And what better way to see the motivations, the heart, the the purpose, the drive of someone than when they are under trial, 
when they are under temptation, when they are under pressure from things. That's often the best way to really see the character of an individual. Not when everything is going well, not when they come to church and they put on, put on the, the Christian face, right? Hello, brother, right? Good morning, sister, right? I, I, I was, <laughs> as I was practicing this sermon, I realized that I have a preaching voice, right? I start talking very seriously like this, but then when I'm talking to you guys outside of this, it's like, whoa, you know, like SpongeBob SquarePants, right? But I think, but to really see somebody's character, you need to see them under trial, under temptation, under pressure. And if we want to see what really drove our Savior, the motivation of our Savior's heart and his mind, his convictions, what, what his world revolved around in his, in his ministry and his life here on earth, we look at the temptation of Jesus Christ in the passage that we read. Because from this, we really get to see the things that, the, the, the convictions of our Savior, why he stood his ground, why he said no to the enemy. Oftentimes, the reason why we get out of sync, out of that orbit of revolving around Christ is due to sin is when we succumb to temptations and the pressures of this world, when we compromise our convictions and our faith. So this morning we're going to see what is, it that, what, what is it that kept Jesus glued to his convictions and didn't, didn't allow him to sway from and compromise his, the, 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 his, his purposes, his will, his heart for God. My hope in all of this for this morning, is for us to really learn the motivation of our Savior, again, to be more like Christ, so that when we face our own temptations and our own trials this week, we would be able to stand just like the Savior. So that regardless of what may come in 2023, whether mountaintops or valleys, we would be able to be like Christ in the midst of it all. And listen, if you are struggling in sin, if you come into 2023, into the new year, thinking, man, you know, Pastor Ian, it's going to be just like last year. A year of struggling in temptation, a year of struggling in, 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 in the flesh, wanting to do something for the Lord but not being able to do it, it's going to be the same thing. Listen, my desire is that you have hope this morning. Because if you are in Christ, the same way that Christ was tempted that you can have victory, that you can, be, that you can have triumph this year as well. Though we are tempted like Christ, that we can have triumph like Christ as well. So let's, let's get into our passage. Let's unpack our, our passage for us. Again, like I said earlier, bring your Bibles because we like to go verse by verse in Scripture to see for ourselves what the Lord is teaching us. It's called expository preaching, right? Uh, for those who don't, who wasn't here last week, uh, we announced, my family announced that Faye is pregnant again with our third child. So, yay, praise God for that. Fantastic. See, this is why you come the last uh, service of uh, the year, because you get surprises. Um, <laughs> it's, well, you, okay, so here's the thing, right? Expository preaching, and I'm trying to convince my wife that that's a great baby name, expository, next to Haddon, Spurgeon, you know, Luther, Calvin, all that stuff. So just pray for her heart in that. Um, 
So the temptation of Jesus has great theological implications. I'm sure everyone has heard the story at some point. This is a a crucial part in the gospel narrative. Theologically speaking, it demonstrates several things. Uh, First and foremost, it demonstrates the humanity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, that though he was God and he became human in in flesh and and adapted a, a human nature, that he, he truly was, in fact, human, and that's why he was tempted. Um, it also demonstrates that Jesus was the second and better Adam, just as we sang a couple of minutes ago, that just as Adam faced the temptations of, of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, here we see Jesus victorious over that all. It also draws parallels to, to Jesus being the greater Israel, so to speak, As we'll see in our passage, the the many quotes that Jesus presents to the enemy in order to rebuke him and to rebuttal the temptations are actually drawn from the book of Deuteronomy and drawn from the experiences of Israel wandering in the desert. So uh, there's parallels there. Uh, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. and uh, For 40 years, Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. So lots of, uh, lots of uh, parallels there. But again, as I mentioned, our main focus this morning is to really see the Savior's heart. As he, demonstrated, as he demonstrates it when he, he opposes the temptations of the enemy. Similar, similarly, it demonstrates where our heart ought to be, where our, our, our hearts need to be if we want to be like Christ, and, and especially when it comes to the temptations of our own life. So let's go, by the, let's go, let's go through this together uh, verse by verse. Let's start at verse 1. I'm sure they're, they're taking care of whatever uh, explosion uh, happened over there. Uh, so let's, let's get back into the word here. First, let's go to verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, already from the first verse, there's so much to unpack here. Sometimes we think, you know, we, when, whenever we go through trial or temptations or a, a struggle in life, we think, God, like, what did I do to deserve this? Why am I in this wilderness, in this valley? But right from the get-go, we see that it was a spirit himself. Right after this, by the way, it takes place right after Jesus is baptized. But we see from the get-go that it's a spirit himself that leads Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness, to be, to be tested in the wilderness. Again, all of it to, as we'll see, to prove who he is, to prove his character. Now it goes on to, it goes on to say that he, got, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I find this very interesting because, listen, no matter what temptation that you've ever faced in this life, I'm pretty confident that you've never been tempted by the devil. I'm pretty confident that you, you, you know, maybe you, you, you've been tempted or, or led astray by one of the devil's lackeys, but the devil took notice of Jesus in this situation, in this narrative, and he himself was going to go tempt the Son of God. He himself was going to go toe-to-toe with the king of the universe in this wilderness. See, the devil's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. So he can't be tempting all of us at the same time, is what I'm trying to say. But here in our passage, the devil took notice of the Son of God, and he's, he's going to go toe-to-toe with Jesus himself. So you've got to imagine that context, right? No matter, no matter what temptation you face in this life, no matter what temptation you face in the new year, 
you're not going, you're not going up against the heavyweight champion of temptations, so to speak. You're not going up against the, 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 the father of lies, as the Bible calls him, right? But here is Jesus. He goes up against the devil, and of course, he comes out victorious. Then verse two, verse 2, it says, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, in the other synoptic gospels, um, in the gospel of Mark and Luke, it talks about that Jesus was tempted all throughout the 40 days and 40 nights. So it wasn't just three temptations in the 40 days and 40 nights. For 40 days and 40 nights, nonstop, relentless temptation from the enemy towards Jesus Christ. Uh, the Gospels only record three of the most prominent temptations. So verse 2 says that he's, he's tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 3, it says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God. Now in the original Greek, the translation for if can also be translated to since. So sins, and so the, the, the sort of the, the connotation there is the, the enemy saying, since you are the son of God, there's a, there's a sort of sarcasm given the tone of the enemy. Since you are the son of God, or if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So what's the first temptation here? Let's unpack this so we get a better understanding of, of Christ and his character in this. At face value, the temptation was simply to utilize Christ's power, right? His divine power, his divine authority to turn solid rock into a loaf of bread. But what we find if we go deeper is that it actually, it, it actually goes deeper than simply Christ using his divine power. But rather, it's the temptation to subvert the Father's will. It's a temptation to autonomy. As we just talked about, the Holy Spirit is the one who drove Jesus into the wilderness. So it was the Father's will for Jesus to be in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The devil comes and says, hey, command these stones to become bread so that you can eat. But hold on, it's the Father's will for him to fast for the 40 days and 40 nights. The devil's coming, no, you don't need to do that. You have the power, you have the authority. Turn these stones, command these stones into bread. That's the temptation of autonomy. Independence from the will of God. Independence from the will of God. And of course, we know the answer that Jesus gives in verse 4 of our passage. But he answered, it is written. Listen, if you have no other motivation to read your Bible, get into the habit, get into the discipline of reading your Bible, this year, this is the motivation right here. If you want to find victory against temptations, if you want to find victory in your life against the trials that you come across, you need to get into the Word of God. You need, can I get an amen to that? You need to get into the truth of God so that when the lies come, when the temptations come, when the trials come, you know exactly what the truth of God says about you and about your circumstance. Get into the Word of God. So Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I love this verse, and oftentimes when we read this verse, or we've heard this verse, or we recollect this verse, we think, see, this, is, this means that we need to live off the word of God, right? We need to get into our word, and, and, and we need to get into the God's word and, and read the word of God. Amen. Very true, very true. I just said that, right? But if we look at the reference that Jesus is quoting here, it goes deeper than that. It really goes deeper than that. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
verse 2 to 3. This is the passage that Jesus is quoting and referring to. Remember, the things that Jesus refers to in this temptation, it stems from all the experiences that the Israelites had in the wilderness, the wilderness of sin, the Bible calls it. Similar to how the Israelites in that wilderness were tempted to rebel against God, and of course, we know that he, they failed. Uh, Jesus quotes these very words from that, those experiences. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 to 3. This is the, the passage that Jesus is quoting. In verse 2, it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Remember what I said, right? The best way to know someone, their character, who they are, is, to be, is when they are being tested, when they are being uh, under pressure. Here the Bible is saying that God put them through the wilderness so that, they could, that, so that he could test their hearts. Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And then verse 3, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, you have to think a minute here, because, you know, sometimes, when, like I said, when we interpret this verse, we think that uh, in this context, that the, every word from the mouth of God means God's word, the Bible. But how does that apply in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when the Bible hasn't been completed yet? What this verse in Deuteronomy is talking about and what we see in the translation of word, every word in the original Hebrew, is that word is interchangeable with command. Command. So the idea here is that it's not word in the sense of the Bible, rather that, every, that the reason we live that, that is not by bread alone, but by every command that comes from the Father's or that comes from the mouth of God. What is this talking about? It's talking about the sovereignty of God. It's talking about the only reason that we live and breathe today is because God wills it, because God commands it. And what Jesus is saying to the enemy in this temptation is that, listen, I don't, I don't need the material food for me to live. The reason I live is by the command of God. He's talking about the sovereignty of God. And by the way, notice, notice the, the, the contrast here. The devil says, command these stones to become bread. Jesus says, I don't live by bread alone, but by every command of the Lord. The devil is trying to tempt Jesus to, to you know, instead of, of yielding to the command and to the will and to the sovereignty of God, take it by your own hands and turn the stone into bread. Autonomy. But what does Jesus say? Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but God's will be done. See, when he was tempted with this idea of autonomy, of being independent of God's will, of, of taking things into his own hand, of, 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 of commanding and using his own power to... to, ins to to, to exert his own will and power over the rocks, Jesus turned to the sovereignty of God. 
trusted in the sovereignty of God that it was indeed the, the, the Father's will for him to be fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. So here, listen, this is the, the so what portion of, of this point here. If we want to be like Christ, how do we respond to temptation like Christ? Simply, when tempted with autonomy, we must trust in God's sovereignty. When tempted with autonomy, we must trust in God's sovereignty. Listen, the devil will tempt you almost in every way to impose your will in your life. The devil will tempt you to say, hey, you could do this yourself. To be independent of the will of God, to be independent of the truths and the commands of God in Scripture. To to subvert God's will in your life. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, oftentimes the reason we get out of orbit of our, us revolving around Christ, our lives revolving around Christ, is when we exert our own will, when we impose our own will for our lives. That's a temptation. It's a, some, the same temptation back in the garden that the enemy gave to Adam and Eve, right? You will be like God. You will decide for yourself what is right and wrong. And it's the same tune throughout all of, all, all of these years that we've existed on earth. Autonomy, independence from God. And oftentimes it does come in the form of fulfilling a fleshly desire instead of waiting on the Lord. You do it yourself. You get what it is that you want. Instead of, of trusting that you know, maybe your singleness is in the, you're in a season of singleness for an appropriate reason, to be refined by God, to be tested by God, for your character to be developed in an act of rebellion and, and fleshly desire maybe even. It's like, I, no, 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 I want to get out of this, this, this season. I'm going to take it for myself, even if it means compromising my convictions. Again, this is the lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. Listen, and maybe this is more specific to us in this sense. The, 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 don't forget that the season you're in today is part of God's will for your life. Don't forget that the season that you're in today is within the context of God's sovereignty. Even the difficulty that you are facing the struggles that you are facing, God, it's all part of God's will for your life. As First Peter, Peter describes, to refine us, to produce in us a faith precious, more, more precious than gold. And as we read from Deuteronomy, it's to humble us. Again, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 again in that passage. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. What does that mean? He led the Israelites through the wilderness so that they may be humbled and and depend on Him. Holy trust in Him. That despite despite having to cross the desert, not having the the, the food and, and the necessities that they needed, that they were in the hands of a God that loved them. That they could trust God. The purpose of our trials oftentimes is to increase our trust and our dependency on God. It's not a, it's, uh, don't believe sort of these, sort of these, these uh, 
these sort of motivational speakers, these motivational preachers, like, you know, you have a difficulty in your life so that you can, you know, conquer it and triumph and become a better person and all that stuff. Yeah, that is true sometimes, but sometimes God uses those things just to get us to depend on him more, to rely on him more. Jesus trusted in the sovereignty of the Father. That's why he didn't waver from the fast that he was, he was undergoing. He trusted that the Father's will was best, that the Father knew what he was doing. So when tempted with autonomy, trust in God's sovereignty. Let's go to verse 5 of our passage. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the top of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is, this is so interesting that the enemy himself uses Scripture, right? Kind of reminds me of you know, some of these false preachers who also use Scripture. And, 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 and by the way, do you think the devil used this uh, passage correctly? Anyone? Absolutely not. Thank you for those who are listening in the back there. Absolutely not. This passage that, that the devil uses, it's taken from Psalm 91, completely out of context. So, a good litmus test for someone, or if you want to know if a preacher is preaching from God's word, if he's preaching the truth of God's word, whether or not a passage is in context. Because if it's out of context, it's straight from the playbook of the enemy. He says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the rock. The second temptation that Jesus is tempted with is that of authority. That is of authority. Hey, you're the son of God. Nothing will happen to you if you throw yourself off the temple. You're the son of God. The angels will catch you. Don't worry about it. Right? Right? You're the son of God, and you know, the, even the word of God says that God will protect you, that the angels will catch you, that you won't even, your foot won't even touch the ground. Don't worry, just jump, right? Just do it. Kind of like those bad friends that tells you to do something, like, except he's not a friend, he's the enemy, just to be clear. So he, this, by the way, is the pride of life. If the first temptation that Jesus had to encounter was the, the, the lust of the flesh, this is the pride of life. It's the, the, the temptation of authority, of, hey, recognize who I am. Recognize my, my title, my position in this life. And what's interesting, again, as I mentioned, that it, it's definitely misquoted. That in fact, this passage in Psalm 91 is not about, it's not about testing God in the sense of, hey, you know what, you could, you could throw yourself down off a, a high place and the angels will catch you, you won't experience any harm. In fact, if you look at Psalm 91, I just, I, here's some verses from it. Here's the context of Psalm 91. It says in verse 1 to 2, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
In verse 9 it says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's, that's what the enemy quoted. And then it goes on to say in verse 14, Because he holds fast to me in love, this is God speaking, I will deliver him, I will protect him, protect him because he knows my name. What's interesting is that Psalm, Psalm 91, is a declaration of the psalmist's faith in God. Of the psalmist's trust in God. The devil made this psalm about trust, trusting God into a psalm about testing God. Huge difference. Huge difference. The devil made it into a a, a psalm about having to prove the power, the authority of God. If you do this, God will prove that you are the Son of God, that, 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 that that your authority will be displayed as the Son of God. He said, do this and God will prove himself to you. Come on. And of course, how does Jesus respond to this in verse 7? He says, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is quoting, once again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, when he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa, at Massa. Now this is interesting that, that Jesus responds in this way. Why was Jesus' response to the enemy, to not test God. If, if this was, again, if, if he was taking this, this passage in Psalm 91 out of context, I think it's important to understand what happened in Massa, in, in that passage, Exodus chapter 17. The Israelites had crossed the Red Sea. They had been brought to the wilderness by God, by a pillar of cloud by, by day and a pillar of fire by night. They were brought to, to the bitter waters that were turned sweet. They were, they were given manna from heaven. And then in Exodus 17, they started to grumble again. Started grumbling in the, about being in the wilderness. Acting like uh, spoiled, entitled uh, brats, right? They were saying, you know, back in Egypt, we had meat. Back in Egypt, we had all the luxuries of the world. Back in Egypt, we had some water. Well, back in Egypt, you were slaves, right? And, it, and we read in Exodus chapter 17, verse 3, the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Even after seeing the glory of God to part the Red Sea, even after God turned water sweet, brought, brought manna from heaven, they questioned God's ability to provide water. They questioned God's ability to provide for them in their wilderness. They jumped to the conclusion that God was trying to kill them. And if, and if God really cares for us, then give us water. That's what's happening in Exodus chapter 17. They were testing God. If God really cares for us, tell him to give us water. That's a, that's a testing part about God. Same thing that the enemy is doing here. The temptation is prove your authority. Prove that God loves you by jumping off this this, temple here. 
Again, double turn to Psalm 91, a psalm about trusting God and turn to a psalm of testing God, of demanding God's love, of demanding God's care. Oftentimes we test God too when we ask him to do something before we believe in him, right? That's the difference between trusting and testing. That's the difference, the, the, very, the very skewed perspective of Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is about the psalmist saying, I trust in God. He is my fortress. He is my rock. He is my refuge. Despite whatever might come, and as a result of that, that psalmist trusting in God, God says, I, uh, he promises these things to him. The devil turns into, hey, throw, yourselves on, throw yourself off the temple so that God can prove whether or not he actually will fulfill this. Totally different. But how does Jesus answer? He answers with humility, in fact. He answers with great humility. Even though he was the Son of God, even though he, if he jumped off the temple, that the angels would indeed catch him, that the angels would indeed keep his feet from hitting the ground, even though he had all the right in the world, as his position as a Son of God, he did not test or, or, or seek to prove his worth in the eyes of God. That's great humility. He did not, you know, sort of brag about his, his title. He did not brag about his position. And so another piece for us uh, to understand the heart and the mind of Christ and, and what his life revolved around, similarly for us, to be more like Christ when tempted with authority. We must demonstrate humility. Again, this is the pride of life, one of the greatest temptations that we can experience. It's a desire to be recognized, to be appreciated, to be looked upon with, with, with desire. Look at me, look at my titles, my accolades, my money, my, pro, my prowess. It's the desire for validation. Something that so much of the world is looking for. Right? I mean, just look at social media. You think people will go on social media if there was no like button? No, I don't think so. A lot of these posts are there for, that, for, for people to like and so that people would be validated. For people to be like, oh man, so-and-so's life is so great. Look at him, he's always traveling. Oh, look at so-and-so, she, she just got this new whatever. All of it is the pride of life. But the way that Jesus responds is in humility. He recognizes that he's loved by the Father, and the Father doesn't need to do anything to prove that. He recognizes that, you know, it. He, that, that even if, even if, that he didn't jump off the temple, that he was loved by the Father. He knew where he stood in the Father's eyes. See, the same goes for us. If we want to be more like Christ, we need to demonstrate humility in this life. Recognizing that everything that we have, everything that we, we own, that we have been blessed with, is in fact a blessing to us from God. As we talked about last week, right? Everything that we have is from the grace of God. 
Not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, because we have this position, a position at work, not because we've done this thing, not because we have this kind of education. Every single thing we have is from God by His grace. Humility recognizes that apart from God, we are just sinners. And the only thing that we deserve is His wrath. God, in His rich mercies and grace, God, in His in, in his work through Jesus Christ on the cross. Understand, believer, that God sees you and he says, you are mine. Isn't that enough? When tempted with, with authority and, des- and that desire to, to exert your authority and to, 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 to boast about your titles and accolades, we see Jesus' example is to demonstrate humility instead. He doesn't need to prove anything. He doesn't need to test God. Verse 8 of our passage. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship we read in other passages of Scripture that, that the devil is indeed, in fact, the king of this world some degree. This is the king of this dark world. We know that in Ephesians, when, um, when Paul is talking about the, the principalities and the powers, those who are in control of this dark world, or, or in the book of Daniel, when, when it refers to the enemy, the devil himself, being the prince of Persia, the one who's in control of governments and the, the one in control of the dark world. And so... This offer that the enemy is giving to Christ is very much legitimate. If you worship me, I'll give you all these things. All these things. All the glory, all the wealth of the nations. I think the devil knew that Jesus came to establish his kingdom. This was a quick, uh, quick shortcut to that, right? The devil said, I'll give you all these things if you just worship me. That is the temptation of affluence. The temptation of affluence, riches, and glory, wealth. What's Jesus' response? And I love this. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan! Exclamation point. Very important. Be gone, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And the other responses, we don't, you know, Jesus presents the truth of the word of God. He says these things. But in this last temptation, we see Jesus get zealous over this thing. He, sees, he says, be gone, say, why, why is that? Why is there zeal and passion in this last temptation or against this last temptation and in this, and in this last response? Well, we see what this is talking about or why Jesus was so passionate when we look at what he's quoting. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. It says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you, with great and good cities that you did not build, 
and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your, mind, in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroyed you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Why is Jesus so passionate about this last temptation? Because you have to understand, the devil brings him on top of the highest mountain, shows him all the glory in the kingdoms of the world, and the only passage that comes to Jesus' mind is this passage right here, when God himself says, when you see the lands before you, when you see the, the houses and the cities that you did not build, when you see the cisterns dug, while the devil is tempting him about all the glory of the earth, this passage, the word of God, is coming to the mind of Christ. But how God told them from the very beginning, when they see all the glory of the earth, to, do, to not be swayed, to not be led astray, to not make idols of those things. For it is the Lord your God you shall fear, and him alone. And then at the very end of that passage, again, the reminder of why we can't, that why we must not turn to these things, why we must not make idols of the things of this world is because God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. So Jesus reciprocates the jealousy of God in Deuteronomy chapter 6 with his own jealousy for God, his own zeal for God. In the Old Testament, zeal and jealousy were closely tied, closely related together. And I think oftentimes when we hear the word jealousy, we automatically think of the human jealousy, the jealousy that envies someone else for, for having something that we don't have. But divine jealousy, God's jealousy, is a righteous jealousy, one that is protective, one that is protective for the very things that is rightfully His. God's people belong to God. God had all the right to be jealous for them, of, of wanting to protect them from wandering off to worship other gods. Human jealousy is reactive. They have this, I want this. God's jealousy is proactive. This is mine. I will protect what's mine. And so Jesus is reciprocating the jealousy of God in Deuteronomy chapter 6 with his own zeal, with his own passion, with his own jealousy for God. How could you even suggest that I worship anything else other than the God of the universe, Satan? That's why Jesus said, be gone, Satan. That's the thing that, that, that riled up the Savior, that drove him to, to stern words, to cast out the enemy. The last temptation where, where after everything else fate failed, the enemy's offering the kingdoms of the world if only Jesus worshipped him. And Jesus, being jealous for the Father, says, No way. Won't even come close. Similarly, to be more like Christ, when we are tempted with affluence, we must respond with jealousy. We must respond with jealousy. When we are tempted to run after the idols of this world, to be satisfied in other things of this world, 
to find contentment and joy and happiness in the riches of this world, in the pleasures of this world. The only appropriate response is, be gone. How could you suggest me worshiping, delighting, taking pleasure, being content in anything else other than my God? That is the only response that you should have. Oftentimes it's, well, it's not that bad. If I watch a little more Netflix, maybe. If I indulge in this a little more. It's not that bad. Could you imagine, believer, the difference it would make in your life if you were just as jealous, just as zealous as the Savior himself. Whenever the enemy comes, whenever the world comes to tempt you to stray from the Lord, to set up idols in your life. Where is your passion? Where is your zeal? Where is your conviction to say, I will not, I will not worship anything else other than my God. I will not prioritize anyone else other than my God. I will, not, I will not invest my riches, my time, my treasures, my talents, anything other than what glorifies my God, that worships my God. Church, that is the call for us. When was the last time you got zealous, passionate, flat out rebuke or whatever temptation there was in your life just from utter love and passion for your God? Out of, out, out of jealousy, a protective desire over your relationship with God, knowing that if you went down that road of temptation, knowing that if you went down that road of idolatry, that it would lead you away from the lover of your soul. To be more like Christ in our worldview. We want to cultivate a, a life that revolves around Christ. I think it's good to learn from the convictions of the Savior as we looked, about, looked at this morning. When we're tempted by, with autonomy, with independence of wanting to do things on our own. Be like Christ. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Trust that God's will is best. That whatever season you're going through is from His will and His desires for your life. Even the hardships. To be more like Christ, we must, uh, when, when tempted with authority, boasting and, and, and exerting our rights, our titles, our positions, we must demonstrate great humility. Not testing God, not calling God to, to prove his love for us, not calling God to prove his, his plans and purposes for us, but just in humility, trusting and relying in our relationship with the Father. And lastly, if we want to be more like Christ. When we are tempted with affluence, the the glories and the riches of this world when we are tempted to go and worship other things of this world, we must respond with jealousy. A protective desire to protect our relationship with Christ, with God. Church, we, like us, Christ was tempted in this wilderness. But like Christ, we can find triumph 
and the temptations that we face in this life. Regardless of what sin, regardless of what temptation or trial, it's interesting, in the original Greek, the the word for temptation and trial are interchangeable. And so regardless of what temptation and trial that you face, understand that you can have victory over it. Victory over it like our Savior. That's That's the reason why he came in the form of man. That's why he, he, he allowed himself to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by the devil himself with, much, with, with, with everything presented to him by the enemy. It's so that he could show us that we too can have victory, that we, can, we too can have triumph over the temptations that we face. Paul writes how no temptation has come to us that is not common to man. But in everything that God provides a way out of those temptations. God is faithful. He provides escapes. He's the God of Exodus. He's literally a whole book in the Bible called Exodus, right? God provides way, a way out. And sometimes that way out is to stand firm. To stand firm in in the midst of trial and temptation, to be like Christ in the midst of them. And when, when we are discouraged, when, we, when hope is lost, when we feel like we are succumbing to sin and temptation on a regular basis, our encouragement, our example is Christ himself. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and I'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the invitation for all of us. For all of us who are struggling with sin and temptation and the trials of this life, the invitation is to find comfort and grace and mercy at the throne of God. To find that His grace is sufficient for us even when the trial is not removed. Even when the thorn in our side is not removed. And that he is faithful to give us that grace. That he is true to his word to give us that help in our time of need. This is our Savior. This is who we are trying to imitate, trying to be like. Jesus Christ. Our faithful high priest who came in the form of man. Who experienced temptation and trial just as we do every day but gives us an example, gives us hope of victory in Him. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.